Hello, welcome back to Back in My Play. Got a very special episode for you guys today. On the line with me is Blake J. Harris, author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation, a book that I've talked about last couple episodes, and I finished it in like 72 hours, and it is a big book, but uh, Blake, I can't wait to talk to you. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I think that alone is a gigantic compliment that, you know, you read it so fast because it is a long book. It's 576 pages, but, um, you know, that's because there's so much information and and there's still so much that I had to cut, but uh, I really put every effort forward possible to get it, to make it a very breezy, beach-like read despite being so rich and and touching on so many subjects so so i'm glad to hear that you got through it quickly well even for people out there if you're intimidated by the uh the the size of the book the the way i did it i i double dipped i got the book on amazon (laughs) but then i'm like i'm not gonna wait for this to get here so uh, I just got it on Audible as well because I have an Audible account and you can, you know, for me personally, I'm able to digest books a lot quick, uh, a lot faster that way because I've, you know, drive to work and I'm walking my dog and I'm doing stuff around the house. You know, I can throw headphones on and uh, get a lot out of it. But it was like the, it was the case where I was laying in bed, like I'm, I'm going to go to sleep, but I'm going to listen to some more of this, but I'm like laying in bed and then I'm laying there for an hour and a half because I'm like, no, I got to keep, I want to keep going because <laughs> it is... I've mentioned this on the show before, but this is the story. This is the most important story in the history of the medium that we love because we have things like Atari, like obviously there was the the, the video game crash or whatever you want to you know call it right. in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. But this is what really, I think, defines video games in general because these are the two big giants at the time. And for us, like, like I'm, I'm 28, so this is, this is like right – you know, when I was playing video games, these were the two, like you were either a Nintendo or Sega. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 31 just for reference. So this was like, um, you know, I was growing up in the late eighties, early nineties playing video games. And this was my life for five, six years. It's been amazing for me to sort of relive that time. Um, at, you know, and, and I think about all the people that I played video games with all the games that I played. And, uh, you know, I think the great thing about people, who are your age or my age and really just in that sweet spot is that we, there's so many fond memories associated with this. Mm. So, uh, as an author, that's great that, you know, I'm bringing up these great memories and, uh, that's, that's really my primary goal here is just to celebrate this time and the people who made those great memories possible. Well, let's talk about the book because, uh, or or even before we get into that, because just to add some context to the discussion going forward, uh, you mentioned a little bit about your history with games, but uh, I I need to know, like, what was what side were you on? Were you uh, did you have like a Sega Genesis, or were you like, no, I'm going to wait for that Super Nintendo? Um, So that is a great question because uh it was you know it really was sort of like political parties for kids like this was defining and um somebody asked me the other day about the people who had both and i i just scoffed you know i you know some of the rich kids did have both but that was kind of just blasphemous um so i had a nintendo entertainment system like pretty much everyone in america in the late 80s and uh I wanted a Super Nintendo because I loved the NES, and I distinctly remember my father telling me no because he said Nintendo would then come up with a Super Duper Nintendo and a Super Super Duper Nintendo, mm-hmm. um, and sort of as a loophole to that, a Sega Genesis was acceptable, and so that is what I had, and that's what my younger brother and I played for uh, 
some of the best three or four years of our lives. That's a pretty good compromise. It is. And you know, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, most of the story is sort of this behind the scenes, uh, corporate battle. And even just that comment that my father made that I never would have thought at the time was business related. And Mm -hmm. I just thought he was being mean or it was kind of funny. Um, you know, that does really speak to how much the business decisions influenced us as kids, because, um, really what he was saying was that Nintendo for backward compatibility. Um, Nintendo made the business decision not to include that. And as a result, I didn't get a Super Nintendo, which is what I wanted. And I joined Team Sega and I was a proud member um, in that war. <laughs> so uh, again, as part of the, the background check that I'm doing for this interview, the uh, other thing I want to ask you about, because the, this, the, the podcast that we do for Back in My Play, it is it is fueled by nostalgia because I'm one of those 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 people that just loves playing the old stuff and loves just like you know living in the past for lack of a better term. So, uh, do do you have any specific memories that really like major events that were video game related growing up? Yeah. Um, so you know the first system we had was the NES and. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I was not always the kindest older brother, and actually in the acknowledgement section of the book, I apologized to my younger brother Dylan for the way I acted during our childhood, which I put in parentheses was like a dick. Um, but but the one thing that always bonded us was video games, and that was where we got along. And uh, Bubble Bobble was our favorite game. Um, it was one of the game, the few games I felt like at the time that you could actually play uh, two player cooperatively. Um, and you know, so I have a lot of memories associated with that. I probably one of the better memories I have from uh, video games from this era was playing Contra. Um, it was the first time that I ever beat a game. My babysitter let me stay up late um, and we beat the game. And I remember just that feeling of 95% of me felt like the gigant- this gigantic, unparalleled triumph. And 5% of me was kind of sad that it was over. And that's just, I guess, how it goes when you win anything in life or when you accomplish any goal. You're so happy you did, but you know the struggle's over. Um, and then with the Genesis... Um, NHL 94 was really my mm-hmm. favorite game. Um, that was the one a few years ago that I started playing. They got me back into this, and I'll tell you about later how I started writing the book. Um, NBA Jam, I remember having tournaments with friends. Um, that was a really big one for me, too. Um, and Toe Jam and Earl was, uh, strangely, the centerpiece of many sleepovers I had with friends in sixth and seventh grade. Um, but, you know, like you said, there, there's so much nostalgia associated with this. And uh, when I was writing the book, I really tried my best not to um, rely on that at all because I, you know, I wanted people to bring their own experiences to this and not really, you know, that the, the book doesn't talk a great deal about the games themselves um, mm-hmm. or even try to, you know, replay like the commercials just for the sake of trying to remind you what they were like to put a smile on your face. Cause, I, cause my, you know, the best reaction for me wouldn't be for someone to say, Oh, this is, you know, a great book. It would be for, or, I mean, I would like them to, but I want them to just think about their own memories and maybe they'd go online and find commercials. And I want this really to start a discovery for them um, personally and about the business. So um, as long as it is, it really just does, it really just scratches the surface of this wonderful time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really fun to write. It's you know it's interesting that you you say all that stuff because for for my brother and myself that we were the same thing. We were always at odds. The only thing that we ever teamed up for, and like <laughs> I've heard similar stories like this to like video games were a uniting factor in households nope. when it came to getting things done. Like we knew we needed to get a copy of Super Mario Brothers 3 so that was we just like teamed up and made sure that we could get a copy of that 
And same thing with the Super Nintendo. Like we just harassed our grandparents <laughs> and said, "No, this is like we this is we're going to do a joint uh, Christmas birthday present. Like just lump it all into one. We don't need anything ever again after this." And we <laughs> yep. they were like, "All right, we we know you usually spend like you get us a game a piece. So if we just put all that stuff into one, that's like roughly two hundred dollars. So let's just get a Super Nintendo instead." And uh, man, I will keep. There's no uh, you know. My grandparents on my dad's side, they they got us, or I should say, they got us a Super Nintendo, and they were some able uh, somehow able to get a uh, copy of the Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. Like they pre-ordered that stuff, and they wow. uh, came through big time. Yeah, my grandmother was, she came through in the the clutch when all that stuff was even in the United States. Like you mentioned in the book, the Super Famicom when that came out in Japan, super hard to get. Like it was back ordered forever, yep. and uh, even the and when it came out in the United States, uh, like almost a year later, it was still super hard to find. You were really lucky if you could get a hold of one of those. Definitely. I mean, Nintendo intentionally uh, uh, undersupplied and, and, and everything was always in high demand. Mm-hmm. And uh, wait, so, so is your uh, brother older or younger? Uh, he is four years older than me. Oh, that's great. So what was it like as the younger brother? Because I know that um, as much as it was a uniting force and it truly was um you know i would be sort of upset if my brother beat me um not just because i want to win but it was like here's my younger brother beating me at this thing and video games really were sort of the first thing that my younger brother beat me at because you know in basketball and sports mm-hmm. and anything else we did I, I was older and wiser but in video games it was a level playing field where how did your brother feel about your game playing skills well we like i said we didn't really get along very much as as kids growing up i was always uh or i should say we we didn't play i don't have any memories of us playing games together it was a lot of like gotcha. trading off the controller and like me going to my mom mom michael's not letting me play <laughs> you know he's not letting me get in a game like when we got a a new a new cartridge in the house but uh i rented a lot and he fell out of the game stuff around street fight i think the last game he ever bought was street fighter 2 turbo and after that he just didn't care as much as I did, and I just carried the torch for the both of us, I guess. <laughs> That's um, great. How did you actually get that Super Nintendo eventually? Was it your grandparent, your grandparents on uh, your oh, side got it? Yeah, we got it launched. We got it on the uh, Christmas launch. Like we, wow. uh, we, the Christmas morning, we got that uh, two controller with Super Mario World bundle, and it was uh, it was torture because we had to go right to church, and then uh, <laughs> then we eventually got home and hooked that thing up and it was all we got i think we had three games total we had uh obviously mario world we also got super ghouls and ghosts and we got uh home alone 2 probably not the best choice but i wanted that game because i was such a big fan of yep uh, or maybe it was the first home alone that we got it's probably the first one and uh it was still i didn't care like it was the greatest thing i'd ever seen in my life so uh, i was happy I think it might actually have been the second one, but I, I had that for Game Boy, and I kept playing it, and it was so bad, and every time I'd pick it up and play it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's terrible. But I just would look at the little cartridge and think, I love Home Alone so much, I, like, and I love Nintendo so much. I want to combine these things. and um, just I, I want to be like Kevin McAllister. Exactly. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the book, and I would love to start off with really what, what was the process like to get all this research done, because you do hit on so many different, like it's really, 
a, you know, a, a 10 or 15 year period that you, you cover in the book, probably, you know, a good 10 year period. Uh, plus there's some uh, bits and pieces from outside that. But what, what was the process like for you? Because it seems like a huge undertaking. Otherwise, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't have been such a gigantic book. Yeah. Um, I definitely didn't know what I was getting into from the beginning. Um, but, uh, I'll, you know, I just kept expanding the scope as, you know, as I got more and more information. And I think that in the end it worked out pretty well. Um, and, uh, but so let me tell you how I got into the story to begin with. Um, a few years ago, I guess it was December, 2010, my brother who is a terrible gift giver, um, asked me what I wanted for my birthday. Mm -hmm. And I told him I didn't terrible gifts. And I also just don't like receiving gifts from people in general. And he said, no, no, no. He had just gotten a job. He was out of college. He wanted to get me a nice gift. Um, and he had actually the year before given me underwear. So I said, uh, you know, don't worry about it. And he said, no, I'm going to make up for all the years of bad gifts. What's the best gift you've ever gotten? And I was thinking, and I said, oh, I guess, you know, the Sega Genesis we got was probably the best gift. And he said, all right, well, then I'm going to get you that. And I thought, that's a really great idea, actually. I'd love to play the Genesis. I haven't played it in 15 or 20 years or so. Um, and so my brother sent me a Sega Genesis um, and a couple games, including NHL 94, um, which had been my favorite. And uh, I booted it up and I held the controller in my hands and it put a smile on my face just like it always did and brought back all sorts of fond memories. And I, and I thought the playing would kind of be uh, sweet and nostalgic and, and kind of easy, I guess I expected it to be. But it was just as challenging as ever. And uh, it just reminded me how much a part of my life video games were when I was younger. I'd sort of lost my way um, after high school and in college and having a job. I wasn't really playing all that much. And it sort of just reminded me, you know, I, um, back then it wasn't – I wouldn't have classified myself as a gamer, but but I played video games at least 10 hours a week, and that was really the central hub of my social life. Um, and so I was just beginning to think about – how gigantic of an influence it had on not just me, but other people who were, grew up in the 80s and 90s, as well as our parents and grandparents who had to deal with these requests. Um, and, and so before I even set out to write Console Wars, I, I honestly just wanted to read it. I thought we were kids at the time. There must be some great behind-the-scenes stories and also you know, what made, what made Nintendo not have backward compatibility, what made all these things happen that I never thought twice about when I was younger, but now, you know, sort of did shape my childhood. And I wanted to know what went into that um, and, and why those decisions were made. So I went to um, the biggest Barnes and Noble I knew in New York City, which is where I live. And uh, I was searching for the video game history section. I thought it would be next to the film history section or the music history section, since uh, the video game industry is bigger than both of those industries. And, uh, you know, similar in being an entertainment form. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only was there no such section, but when I asked the person at the information desk, uh, she kind of smirked at me and told me that they didn't even have a single video game book in stock. And I thought that was shocking for such a big industry. Um, and that's when light bulbs started to go off a little bit. You know, there wasn't a moment where I thought, oh, man, fill this need. Um, but, it, but it got me wondering, why was there no um, mainstream available book in uh, a Barnes & Noble store um, type of place and and I you know from there I uh did find some great books on the subject like David Chef's Game Over mm -hmm. um Harold Goldberg's All Your Base Are Belong to Us um Tom Bissell wrote a good book a few years ago Extra Lives and there are books out there and they are pretty good books um but none of them except for I guess David Chef's really were the kinds of books that I like to read um which is those behind the scenes business stories like Disney War the smartest guys in the room mm -hmm. the accidental billionaires um and uh 
you know, David Chef's book really was the one that felt most like that, um, where you got to see Nintendo from the other side of the coin. But as I was reading that book, which I was really enjoying, I felt like it was starting to get very, very interesting um, towards 1991 and 92. Uh, he wrote it in 92. And, uh, you know, when the book ended, I felt like that was the most exciting time. Sega had just come on the scene. Um, but David Chef says, you know, it looks like Nintendo has defeated Sega or will defeat Sega. And who knows with this World Wide Web thing coming and multimedia is the big buzzword. Things could change. Um, so in many ways, I kind of viewed my work as a, as a, as a sequel to that, um, you know, uh, and, and tracing Sega's rise and then fall. And so things really started to crystallize for me when I spoke with Tom Kalinske. Um, I had seen that he gave a quote in a, an article on IGN about the history of Sega uh, written by Travis Foz, and I contacted Travis, and, and he gave me Tom's email address, and I contacted Tom and told him why he should speak with me, an author with no writing credits. Um, you know, I, I had been a screenwriter, a um, very mildly successful one, and didn't so um, credit Tom for taking the chance to even listen to me. Um, and so we spoke, and after, the, after we spoke, it lasted for two hours, and then I, that was the moment I knew that this is an incredible story um, with a lot of, per, you know, to, that there was a personal way to tell the story, and not just about Tom, um, but all these people involved. And, you know, to make it about um, more than just these video games that as a kid I thought sort of just came out of the sky or, or came out of the Japanese sky, um, but to really put names and faces to all, this, all these decisions and show how personal lives and professional lives collided. Um, and after I spoke with Tom, I just started um, acting like an assassin and tracking down all these people who used to be involved. And uh, it took me, all in all, um, three years to uh, research and write the book. Uh, the first two years were just entirely research-based, except mm -hmm. for writing a book proposal. Um, and that was really how I was able to cover such a wide range of topics in such a large period of time in the detail I was able to cover, um, you know. Like I said, going in, I, I didn't necessarily expect that it would take this long or that it would um, – and I don't know that I would have set out to do it if, if it was going to be that challenging. But it was – it ended up being so fun um, and I always was excited to contact these people and hear their stories. And, and, and the other really fun part for me was that I would say 95 percent or maybe even more of the people I spoke with at both Sega and Nintendo or even the third parties or – journalists of the time all had such a fond memory of this period you know one of my biggest worries was that I had sort of fantasized that working at Sega or Nintendo was going to be some equivalent of working in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory but then I'd find out you know nope it was just you know like any other job you punch a time card you get your paycheck um, but no everyone really loved it they felt this battle as much as we did as kids um, and, and you know you, we could debate and hopefully we will. Who won this console war? But but the runaway the runaway winner really was us, the consumers, the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, we got better games, that we got better systems at better prices, um, and and that was just the result of this rivalry. And that's what takes us sort of in the direction of where the video game industry is today. Yeah, I'll definitely be picking your brain more on that uh, a little bit later in the interview. But right. the uh, you know. It, it it was just from from reading the book, and I'm I'm a huge fan of like hatching Twitter, the everything store, uh, you know, yeah. in the Plex. Like this this the writing style that you used for the book just uh, is probably why I also like needed to devour it constantly because <laughs> it was like you got to sit in the room with these people as they made these decisions or had these arguments or had to live through these events. 
and uh, just lots of lots of really interesting uh, insight from from there. Uh, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, really thinking about how I wanted to write the book, um, and it is, um, you know, I wrote it in a narrative nonfiction style. Um, and, and really tried to put you not just as a fly on the wall, but, you know, like a fly at the table that was that close and, mm-hmm. and inside these people's heads. And that was just because when I was start, when I, like I said, you know, they all had such great fond memories. Uh, and when I was speaking to these people, they all had such unique, um, vantage points into the story and such, you know, such charged visceral memories that I felt like the only way to really capture that and to capture the feel, um, was was to show it and not tell it as the old writing adage goes, but really to just you know I want it was as important to me to capture the feeling and the spirit of working at these companies and of what went into making a decision as it was for the decision itself and the facts that led to that. Um, and I would also like to mention that all along the way, you know, my ideal reader in mind was my grandmother, um, who much like sounds like your grandparents, you know, doesn't know anything about video games other than that I, that I really wanted them when I was a child and asked for them a lot, mm-hmm. and I thought that. If there was a way to tell this story um, and, and make it appealing to someone who doesn't know about video games, um, while also making it, I would hope, extra appealing to those who do, um, then you know I was in good shape, and, and this was a good way to get the history of video games out there to um, both gamers and non-gamers alike. Yeah, there's just there's so much uh, great uh, you know history and, and information in there, and uh, we're, we're definitely going to come back uh, around to that. I wanted to sure. ask you because. You, you mentioned a bunch of other books that, that have come out before this, but uh, from my experience, a lot of these books were, you know, heavily on, like, it was either about Atari or it was all about Nintendo. So I, I just never felt like I was getting the, the whole story, and it was really interesting for you to, to start off with uh, Tom Kalinske on a beach uh, and, you know, the start of his reign at uh, Sega of America. Um, was that, you know, something that you went into? It's like, yeah, I'm going to really just make sure I, I tell the Sega side of this story too, because everything that has come out, let me take a step back. A lot of like retro stuff out there is very Nintendo heavy. It's less on the, the side of Sega. There's more right. people that seem to have better, either it's more memories of Nintendo or maybe that's just because that's where the clicks are or whatever. But, uh, I, you know, I really appreciated that you went and started off with Sega. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I've just always been an underdog guy. Um, you know, I, I love sports. I'll watch any sporting event and people will ask, you know, who you're cheering for. And I'm almost always just cheering for whoever's losing at the time. I like, I like, uh, to root for upsets and I like to root for, you know, close games and whoever's losing. And so, Mm -hmm. um, to me, when I was started reading things about Nintendo, um, whether it was David Chef's book or just entries on Wikipedia or old newspaper articles, you know, um, I, I guess I had the sense that they were the market leader, of course, but I didn't realize that they had over 90% of the market, um, that there were antitrust lawsuits against them, that they had so much control over third parties and um, retailers. And so it seemed to me very odd that there was so little written about um, whatever it was that broke that spell, mm-hmm. um, that, that some company came in there, somehow managed to break that, um, and and then not only used creative ways to do it and had really interesting personalities, but then within this, you know, after breaking that spell, um, in the next couple of years, they kind of imploded. And, and it just, 
almost seemed odd to me that every time I would read these retro histories, um, which were fascinating, that there was like this elephant in the room. And, and that's why I wanted to focus on the Sega story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just, you know, Tom himself was a really interesting guy and it worked out well for me, um, in terms of telling the story that Tom was such an outsider to this industry. Um, and I think, you know, as the book was written for people, um, who didn't necessarily know anything that Tom could sort of be our eyes and ears into that story through Sega and show us, um, you know, what this industry is all about. It's rich history, um, and why it's different than other corporate battles. Um, but getting, you know, getting to see things from the Sega side of the story and, and really feel that, fill that gap that you were sort of describing in literature, um, Mm -hmm. and even just articles was very meaning, you know, I felt like it was very significant to do that. Um, because, not only is this a great story of video games, but um, those lessons that Sega used to bridge that gap can be applied to any business. And and like I said, they were instrumental to me, even just in helping to market the book and helping to get it sold and helping to bring on Seth Rogen. So uh, I really love telling things from the Sega side of the story. Um, and, and another part of the reason that, especially in the first half, that it focuses so much on Sega and Tom is... Uh, I had a lot of trouble getting access to people from Nintendo. They, I was going to ask you about that because yeah. they've, they've always been, I mean, they've always been a closed off more Japanese uh, than American company. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I had a very, very difficult time. And then even in the first two years when I would speak with people from Nintendo, um, uh, the answers were much more uh, yes or no based. Mm. Um, whereas... Uh, Tom and Al Nilsson and Shinobu Toyota, they can go on for hours just filling you with anecdotes. And, and the book itself is very anecdotally driven, um, or at least in terms of setting the stage. So that was a real challenge for me. And I, tr- I tried my best to uh, to work around that while still trying to be very fair to Nintendo and show things from their perspective. But, uh, you know, Howard Lincoln um, was the number two and then number one guy during that time period. And mm-hmm. he declined my interview requests for two and a half years. And, and I didn't, um, thank God he did agree to speak with me. You know, I, I, I'm as much as I would complain that it took so long, you know, I'm just grateful that he did, mm-hmm. but, but I had one month between when I spoke to him and when I turned in the final draft of the book and wow. I made every hour count in that time to go back and to work things in. Um, but you know, it's hard because I wanted to write, um, the chapters almost, you know, it, they're written in the third person, but I wanted them to be from sort of the POV of the person I was focusing on. And that's hard when you're not speaking with these people and, and getting getting declined um, so often. But so, yeah, so Nintendo was really difficult. Um, and not, and as you said, they are sort of a unique closed off company. And um, because it also is very much Japanese influenced where it's that situation that, uh, you know, you sort of have the opportunity to work there for your the rest of your for your entire life. Um, a lot of the people who are discussed in the story are either still there or had retired in the past few years and are sort of lifelong Nintendo people. Whereas at Sega, it was much more of a Silicon Valley type environment where mm-hmm. passing in and out was kind of the norm. Um, but Gail Tilden, who was the uh, editor in chief of Nintendo Power, was extremely helpful to me um, early on in. Uh, being supportive and helping give me background and help introduce me to people. And Peter Main too, um, ultimately was really pivotal in the end, um, in, in getting Howard to speak with me and getting others. Um, then the other one was, uh, Minoru Arakawa and, and he's the only person in the entire book that's mentioned that I wanted to speak with that didn't speak with me. Um, and so it was really hard that the number one and number two guys at Nintendo of America, um, either didn't speak with me or, or spoke to me only one month before I turned in the book. Um, but I did try my best to uh, work around that and not 
um, try to make the story too skewed against Nintendo, who I have a ton of respect for. Well, it's not surprising. Even today, today, like Nintendo in present day, there's when, whenever people talk about Nintendo of America, it is usually the case of. Yeah, they don't have a ton of power. They're really just, you know, they're really just getting directed by Nintendo of Japan, and right. they don't make a lot of the decisions. They might have a little bit of power, but mostly they're just going to do what you know Nintendo of Japan is, you know, what's coming down the ladder from the top, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and that was partially the other thing as well. Um, you know, I think that some of the some of the best sections in the book um, deal with sort of Sega's. Um, you know, let's do it attitude where you know, mm-hmm. these guys are in a room, they talk about it, they're like, let's try it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But but you actually see the conversation happen and then they try it. And and Nintendo, um, that wasn't my the experience I was hearing. It was a lot of times like, all right, let's let's talk to Mr. Arakawa about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and without his perspective, you know, I would have loved to hear him weighing the pros and cons of a certain decision or um, you know, things that they tried that didn't work um in his mind. But without really getting into his head, you know, it was I, I could really only focus on the results, on what they did or what they didn't do, and not the the uh, nuances and the gray territory of what might have been. Um, but that being said, I do think the second half of the book, um, which which sort of talks about or you know tries to get into how Nintendo weathered the storm and really um, stuck to their guns in a lot of ways. Um, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed um, part, a lot of parts in the second half where I got to see things from both sides, and particularly there was a chapter. Uh, called Man's Best Friend, which was started off with Tom Kalinske walking his dog and sort of uh, uh, running in his mind everything that was going on at Sega. And then the next half of the chapter deals with Peter Maine, um, mm-hmm. who was walking his dog. And, and he told me that he walked his dog, Casey, every morning and that if not for those walks, he would have gone insane. And those were the things that calmed him down and helped him deal with what Sega was doing. And, and I just, you know, I would have, that was one of my favorite chapters. And probably from the beginning, if I had had access to both companies, there would have been a lot more like that. But I also knew going in, um, that it would be very, very hard to get people from Nintendo to speak. Um, so I, I don't think I was naive about it. And, and in the end, I was um, actually glad with how much access I was able to get. Were you able to talk to, uh, I know Howard Phillips is a little bit more, I don't know if he's, he shows up to some like retro expos and stuff like that. Was he uh, available to, to talk to? Yep. Yeah, I spoke with Howard Um a couple of years ago, and then I also uh, interviewed him for the documentary as well. Um, and he had some, you know, really interesting perspectives. I mean, I, I probably didn't realize how much I adored him until I, um, as a kid, until I spoke with him. And then, you know, hearing about just sort of his rock star celebrity status, I remembered thinking so much. You know, I, re- I really did want to grow up and be this guy and be the guy who played video games for a living, or at least mm-hmm. that was the way it was being uh, pitched to us kids. And um, yeah, he was uh, he was great to me, um, and it was also great to uh, actually get to spend a day with him filming the documentary. Um, and George Harrison as well, um, mm-hmm. who had some really interesting insights as uh, as a veteran of the Cola Wars, um, though he was on the underdog side in that fighting for Pepsi. Uh, he was really and he, he was very candid as well because he came into he joined uh, Nintendo in March of 1992, so it was a little bit after the Super Nintendo had launched and. Whereas a lot of the people I spoke with at uh, Nintendo um, said things that that I understand why they would say it, but I don't necessarily think it was true that they would uh, say things like that they uh, you know always always took Sega seriously or that they were a worthy competitor from the beginning. Um, George said more uh, apt things like that they were caught off guard um, by Sega, which seems to align more with the 
information I, I see. Um, and he was really uh, a great interview as well. Well, you could even tell just looking at the advertising from back then that Nintendo was really just ignoring what Sega was doing, even though Sega, and you mentioned a lot in the book, like Sega was just talking trash all the time about Nintendo. It was Sega does what Nintendo don't. It was like, look at what Sonic can do. Mario was super slow. And then Nintendo just wouldn't respond. They would just put up another advertisement for like F-Zero or something like that yeah. instead. And and the other funny thing is uh, I didn't really realize it until later on, and it's not too, too significant, but I thought it was interesting that um, I was able to get a hold of uh, – a lot of Nintendo's speeches at the consumer electronic shows and uh, mm-hmm. the E3 show, and they always um, referred to Sega as our competitor. Even in the even in the legal uh, stuff, when they came to like rating games and things like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they just they it, uh, to uh, Nintendo, Sega was uh, he who must not be named, and they just wouldn't even give them the satisfaction of call, of calling them Sega or, or saying anything about them. Um, so it was re- it was really just interesting in the language they used. It's. Again, it, it, it's hard to, or it's easy to find parallels between things that were going on then and today. Even it, it is, it's almost depressing to read how, uh, really how not not arrogant, but kind of stubborn that the the Japanese sides of both companies were. Because uh, Sega of Japan also seemed to n- not be doing their best to help. Uh, Sega of America do the best for the territory. There was, you know, things like the the Sega Saturn incident where uh, it, it looked like Sega of America had a really good thing lined up with Sony. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even when that fell through, they had a really good thing lined up with STI. Um, yes. And at every corner, they're just like, nope, this is what Japan wants. So, of course, America is going to need to deal with that as well. Yeah. And uh, sort of... Um Unsurprisingly, uh, as w- with my experience with Nintendo, uh, getting access to Sega of Japan was uh, next to impossible, oh, um, yeah. and people wouldn't want to speak with me. And, and I have to admit that um, you know the the first uh, year or so when I heard these stories about Sega of Japan from Tom or Al or other people at Sega of America, I thought that um, you know there was a little bit of uh, blaming the other guy for the problems that ended up happening and. Sure. Um, you know, and to some extent that might be true and maybe the book, um, you know, is, paints too rosy of a picture for Sega of America as opposed to Sega of Japan. But um, in the middle of that, I was hired by Sega of America to shoot some documentary, uh, short documentary films in Japan. Um, and so I was in, I was there for a week and got to see Sega of America and Sega of Japan interact. Um, and I thought the uh, relationship was horrible and it epitomized exactly what um, – Tom and Al and everyone else had said, um, just in tr- whether it was uh, the rooms that we were going to shoot in, um, our schedule, there was everything was so there's so much passive aggressive um, back and forth, and, and I felt like they were doing everything possible to watch us fail with, without actually explicitly doing something that, that you could call out and say, "Hey, why are you doing that?" It was uh, it was really start really startling to me, um, and, and I got I felt that tension that they had all described. Um, and so, you know, perhaps, perhaps it was not as, um, you know, perhaps Sega of Japan was not as uh, responsible as those at Sega of America. Um, I, I believe that they were, and I felt like my firsthand experience um, helped clinch that for me and, and understand, as I wrote, just wrote about it, that I could sort of channel that frustration, um, how, how hard it must have been 
um, when you all you want to do is help your company. It's not like this is your you're not doing this for your own limelight and for your own selfish goal. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom wanting to work with Sony was not just because he wanted to raise his fist and say, "Look what I did." He wanted Sega to be around for the next five years and be dominant. Um, and and the fact that factors that seemingly had less to do with video games and more to do with ego yeah. um, were the reason that that fell apart is really sad. Well, I, and it, and it correlates with a lot of stuff that I've heard. Like I have uh, a friend who's uh, a little bit older that I know in Japan, and he worked at Panasonic for years and years and years. And just to hear the stories about the the management at Panasonic and even uh, – Oh God! What was the the book I read a, a couple of years ago about? Uh, I think it was uh, Nikon, uh, the the camera company that yeah. uh, again just the the board just being terrible <laughs> and not and just kind of looking out for themselves all the time and trying yeah. to save their face and not really caring about uh, the company as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I guess in general, even in America, uh, board of directors have a reputation for sort of playing it safe and a little bit of a cover your ass attitude, but sure. maybe just because America um, is so synonymous with or strives to be a place of innovation, at least, at least they are willing at times to uh, support risks and maybe even um, to the detriment, they think sometimes like, Oh, well, you know, the future will be brighter than now. And well, let's take a risk so that we can get everyone excited about this, um, which is not the mentality I saw over there uh, or, you know, read about and heard about from over there. Uh, and also, you know, we're talking about Nintendo and Sega, but it's, it's worth noting Sony as well. You know, the book, um, Sony's definitely not as much of a primary character at all, but um, the Sony PlayStation, you know, there were so many forces existing. Um, most of those on the board at Sony were against getting into the video game industry as a hardware maker and even staying in it as a third-party software maker. Um, and Ken Kutaragi, the, you know, the, the architect and the mastermind behind the PlayStation, and the guy who created the um, audio chip for the Super Nintendo, you know, I never got the sense that he was uh, being lauded internally for those innovative efforts, but you know, more that he was being pushed down. And, and you know, thank God he, he fought back and brought us this great product. Well, didn't he even go behind like, the, yes. the, their back and just make it part of like, Sony's audio division? Just yeah, to, it to was make part the of the, the music division. Yeah. Um, um, you know, in Japan, it was being worked on in the music division, and and over here, Olaf in the Olaf mm-hmm. Olafsson in the Sony Publishing Entertainment division, the third party division. You know, those were the two guys that were really making it happen. And obviously, Kudaragi um, doing the hardware was the godfather of it all. But uh, you know, never before have I heard so many stories about uh, great products being suppressed. Um, and that's, that is really sad. And, and so much of the second half of the book for me is about what could have been and what should have been and the strange, strange reasons why they never were. Yeah, the cultural differences between East and West are you know, very apparent in the book. And uh, you, there's examples like you know, Sonic 2 being developed over here in the United States and even today where you see you know Sony's American division or the the western side of uh, Sony having a lot of influence on the PlayStation 4 has you know really turned that you know helped that console be something that uh, has been huge on the western 
you know, side of the world, maybe not so much on the eastern side just yet, but uh, it is just interesting to see how after kind of getting their butts kicked a little bit with the PS3, <laughs> at least in the, you know, in terms of launch and the, the hardware issues, uh, they definitely said, all right, well, maybe we need to uh, think a little bit differently about this. And even at one time, they had a Western uh, a Western man being like the head of Sony. So they at least are trying something a little bit different where Nintendo is still like family owned, like it is uh, pretty much locked in what they're going to do right. uh, going forward. And they, they still seem to be making enough money to be okay with it, even though they just posted like the biggest losses of all time uh, for yeah. their company. Uh, they still have plenty of cash in the bank to make some more mistakes, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, they do, but it's, uh, you know, the the last section of the book is called The Tortoise and the Hare, and, you know, there's a there's a parallel there's a parallel to that parable um, of Nintendo sort of um, st- sticking to their guns and and riding it out, um, which is also just another way of saying that they were stubborn and that they won in the end. Um, it's kind of just a matter of where the finish line is, and and you know, but back then the the cost of being in the business was significantly lower than it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder how long they can weather that storm for, or if they could turn around. Hopefully they will. That would be. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about the the cultural conflict between Japan and America, um, and, and you know, one of my favorite parts of the book was the one that was a little bit more tangentially related and not um, super related to the video game side of things, but but really showed you that conflict was the Seattle Mariners deal for Nintendo. Yeah. Um, because that was to me was a you know one of the first times where I really started to sympathize with Nintendo of America. Um, you know reading old newspaper articles. Um, so the situation was that uh, the Seattle Mariners baseball team was up for sale. The owner was going to sell it to somebody who was going to move the team to Florida. Um, and Nintendo of America stepped up and uh, bid to buy the team. Um, Hiroshi Yamuchi was the one who put up the money. So it would have been a Japanese owner. Um, and he was the president of Nintendo. And, and there was a, a national backlash um, against this, this, this bid um, because it was not an American and because uh, people felt like this is America's pastime and Japan was trying to steal it the same way that, um, you know, this was coming after Sony had made significant uh, investments in Columbia Pictures and mm-hmm. CBS Records. And, and there was a sense that Japan was trying to take over the world. Um, and, and, you know, it surprised me just the language that you see in these newspaper articles. Yeah, it was borderline um, racist. Yeah. And, you know, and nowadays, um, certainly over the past 20 years, just our culture has become a lot more uh, po- uh, pc aware um but it wasn't even just the pc aspect it was the attitude you know you i think a lot of the pc um changes in in culture is just that we're more politically correct about the 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 words we use you know um but but or just in the in the terms that we use um how to describe people of certain groups but this wasn't about that there was vitriol behind this whether they called uh them japs or or respectfully japanese people you know Mm -hmm. um and so that sort of just laid the scene at the time of of how much there was this um japan versus america drama going on in the background um and and credit to nintendo for their guns and doing what they thought was right and buying this team and and which today you know is still in seattle and is one of nintendo is one of the longest tenured owners of this team um but and you know they endured that backlash and and uh it was just really interesting to see um, you know that that cultural conflict in another aspect than video games at the time, but still be related to the story. Yeah, it's an uh, unfortunate fact that there's still in you know Japan. I think like three percent of the population are not native 
to the country. So there still is, you know, there, the, the common term is like gajin, like there's still, you know, a clear, uh, not dislike, but there is some, you know, some portion of the population that is not uh, super excited when they see white people uh, in, in the country uh, due to the fact that uh some older Japanese still have uh, resentment from World War II, and also there are military bases like in Okinawa. Like that is, uh, there's people protesting at the Okinawa military base all the time. Um, so there's still some resentment for that. And even like from the times that I've gone to Japan, like there's been multiple occasions where I've been like going through game shops and you know heard like the Japanese teenagers. Like, you know, speaking in Japanese and Gajin will pop out because I have this big ass backpack full of video games and I'm taking up more space than I should because, you know, I'm a six foot tall, 195 pound person. Uh, so I'm not It's like you, you've been to those aisles, right? Like it's hard to fit through those aisles in some of those yeah. shops. <laughs> like they're made for small people. So uh, it just kind of went to uh, just not just bum me out a little bit because it is such a fantastic country and a large majority of the population are just fantastic people. But to just have these, these things that with, whether it's on the business side or, uh, you know, just dealing personally, it is, uh, it's always a bummer to hear more about the negative aspects of the country. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a very complex situation and, you know, I, I, that I, it's disappointing to hear about your experience though. I I'm sure that there are probably, almost as many situations the reverse over here. Um, you know, yeah, there's always absolutely. a small percentage of the population that uh, is not representative of everyone and had, has opinions that we wish they, you know, didn't have and didn't express that way. But, and I will say know, a, a large majority of my time in Japan, like I've been there five times in the last two years, like or two and a half years, the, the large portion of it, uh, everyone has been super polite, super nice. And uh, it is, it's why I keep going back there. It's because the people are yeah. so welcoming. But it's just you know, you know, especially in the context of this book, it's it's very strange to see uh, those uh, preconceived notions and those mm. and that baggage play a role in business decisions and and very much so like indirectly in, in your and my childhood that these things actually like affected our lives. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, talk about some of the history again. The NES at the time was uh, huge. We're talking uh, late 80s, uh, 1990. The the NES was the dominant console. I think it was, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it was in like 30% of the households in the United yep. States. Yeah, it's pretty much one in three homes. That's gross. Um, it's it's uh, unbelievable. <laughs> I was just also um, looking at some old statistics again. And uh, I was reading that in 1989, um, Nintendo single-handedly accounted for nearly 25% of the revenues in the entire toy industry, uh, which is startling to think that, you know, you walk into a giant Toys R Us back then and there would be that uh, little but beautiful Nintendo World section and that was accounting for 25%. Um, And also, I saw the top 30 products in 1989, the top 30 toy products, 25 of the 30 were Nintendo products, um, which is just like mind blowing. Uh, can you imagine anything like that nowadays? Like one company dominating so much. It's Not in the United States, maybe in Japan, there's some, you know, there's, there's certain products out there that, that do seem to, to dominate. Like if it's a monster hunter or something like that, but, um, you bringing that up, you uh, talk about in the book the the chokehold that Nintendo had on retailers. Like that, yeah. it was 
it was a case of, you know, you either follow Nintendo's rules or guess what? You cannot sell Nintendo's products. And people were making money off these. Like, I think you mentioned Walmart. Walmart's like 10% or was it more than that of their revenue was all or their uh, profits was all from Nintendo products. Yeah. I mean, Nintendo was such a big deal. And uh, when when you hear... We, the, the word control peppered as much as it was um, in my early research and, and from the perspective of the Sega people especially, you know, I think there's a, a, um, an inclination to villainize Nintendo or to see them as a, a bully. Um, and, and that's certainly a valid perspective in some contexts. But things started to really, uh, you know, make sense for me when I thought, one, about um, just that video game crash and how much Nintendo had done to resurrect the industry and how um, as, as uh, draconian as some of these decisions were, that they did, you could say that they were for the quote-unquote greater good and that mm-hmm. they did help the industry. And then the other thing that really sort of was a bit of a turning point for me was to just make the comparison between uh, Nintendo back then and Apple today. Um, you know, because I feel like the big thing that Nintendo did back then um, that I could was a philosophical idea that I can get behind is is ensuring the you're ensuring that the user has the greatest experience possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Apple, um, there's a lot of horror stories of trying to work with them and that it's their way or the highway. And, you know, they have a closed architecture and everything has to go through Apple. And, um, you know, because they've been successful up to this point, people haven't complained all that much. Um, but I can see why people would object to that, though, as a consumer, I, I would have to say that I, I think every single purchase I've made from Apple over these years has been a great one mm-hmm. in the same way that it always was with Nintendo, where, you know, every game was actually a really good game. All the products, um, you know, for the most part, I don't remember. Every, every game was exactly. always a good game. I don't know, man. There was some, there was some garbage on that. <laughs> well, I guess I had. Um, okay. But that also, you know, brings me to another thing that I remembered. Um, so I remember one time my parents... Uh, took my brother and I to a KB Toys after we saw a movie mm-hmm. and uh, and they were going to buy us a game and this was like the first time ever they were just going to like buy us a game not for our birthday or not for anything but just, just for the sake of getting us a game. And That's I, huge, we, yeah. Yeah, we were looking at all these games and, and it just <laughs> struck me looking back that our entire criteria for deciding what game we wanted was just looking at the back of the game. Of you know, course. there was no internet. Um, there were commercials but they tended to just be like the Mario, Zelda, top, top games um, and, and that was sort of um, made it stranger for me and less sympathetic that Nintendo was so against uh, video game rentals that they had sued Blockbuster um, and that they were against things like Game Genie. You know, when you're when that was the environment of you not really knowing like we fifty dollars is a lot of money to spend and we were basing it on the back of the game. Um, you know, you would have hoped that Nintendo at some point would have sort of just been like, all right, we can loosen up a little bit because there's a way to do this where we can work with Blockbuster and other rental chains and, and find a way to make you know, the, the user have the greatest experience possible while still controlling the quality. Um, so as much as there is that perspective that they have of you know, ensuring the user experience, um, th- there are times when I raised an eyebrow and thought, you know, I think that you could have made this work or there was a different way to do this without being so uh, aggressive and intimidating. Well, it's just like the specific stories where you would have a mom and pop shop like uh or mom and pop store they would offer the nes for instead of a 199.99 it would be like 194.99 and if they did that like nintendo would like maybe not bring their full shipment of games next time so they weren't able to make the profit like it was it was stuff like that and not 
just necessarily people trying to screw Nintendo or screw the consumer. It was just them trying to get a little bit of an advantage over the, you know, the the KB Toys or the Toys R Us or something right. like that. Um, and for those listening, they might wonder, oh, isn't that illegal? Um, and the answer is yes. And that and they and they Nintendo was involved in antitrust lawsuits from the U.S. government during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of the net result of that was a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And in one of the situations, it was Nintendo had to pay a fine that was um, they, they gave out coupons that was money off of your next Nintendo purchase. Um, so they were giving back this money, but it was being spent on Nintendo products. And I guess you know this is all my way of trying to say that um, you know for consumers to win, uh, competition really does breed the best. And and you know so basically the government I don't think alone would have been able to change Nintendo's ways and um, make them adapt and help those mom and pop shops. But what it took was really Sega or just a challenger that could say, all right, Nintendo, you want to not give discretion to be so heavy-handed well we're we're going to do the opposite of that and we're going to um become their friends and they're going to support us in every subtle way possible you know whether it was a retailer i spoke with who would uh you know accidentally knock the nintendo box to its side so it wasn't facing out and and give Mm -hmm. sega a good position or whether they would tell their employees you know when somebody asked about video games really try to steer them towards this new sega thing it could be great um you know they wanted Sega to win um, in a way that I never would have expected, but I completely understand because it must have been so frustrating for them to have to deal with that. Well, it seems like the, there was lots of information in the book on the, the side of the retailers and how Sega worked with retailers to make sure that the retailers were super happy, even to the point where they gave them like pretty much a vacation uh, <laughs> to to sell them on new Sega products. And uh, the... And it, like you like you were saying, it, it just seemed like the retailers were they were rooting for Sega just so they could get some leverage with Nintendo, absolutely uh, more than and anything I, else. Definitely, that you know, it wasn't just that they loved Sega. They they you know, I think that they got along better with people at Sega, but but mostly it was their bottom line, and and they knew the competition would help the marketplace. And once they saw that Sega was a worthy challenger, they were all too happy to help them. Um, but I think a lot of it also goes to just you know. We're both, uh, you're almost 30 years old, I'm 31. I think that one of the biggest lessons in life is that it's not always what you say, but how you say it. Yeah. Um, and uh, to be blunt, I think Nintendo had terrible bedside manner in a lot of this stuff. And, and you know. Well, there was no negotiating. Like the, you, there yeah. some moments where that you mentioned in the book where there would be meetings with retailers between retailers and Nintendo. And there was there was no wiggle room. It was literally, no, these are our rules. Like we'll meet with you and talk to you about it and try to convince right. you that our rules are correct. Um, but I'm sorry, like this, this is just what we're doing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Nintendo, a little bit um, during that time, and uh, that was because of Sega. And, you know, they still are <laughs> definitely not very loose, but uh, it was interesting to see how they changed and adapted a little bit over those years, um, which, which st- if you looked at where they started, it was pretty significant um, to watch that change. Well, I think it always the the more loose and uh, the more I guess you would say like e- extreme attitude of Sega always was going to work better for the uh, the West, anyways. Because uh, I think it, it it just from top to bottom, from their advertising to uh, just the interviews that you did for the book, like these people just sounded like fun people. Like it sounded like they really enjoyed their job and they put every last bit of of, of themselves into it to make sure this product succeeded because they believed in it and uh, they just, they had fun with it. Yeah, no, they, they, you know, they willed this product into 
um, the perception that it was. And, and like, and like you said, you know, they sound, they, they were very fun people to speak with. I still speak with them now. And, uh, you know, I, I totally understand how they were able to do it. Um, you know, in hindsight, it maybe seems like it was an obvious thing, but it wasn't at the time. It was so hard for them. It was such an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they were able to do it because they knew how to speak to people and how to sell the narrative of Sega being this, being in this David and Goliath story at the time. And they also, you know, they were so good at selling this narrative of Sega and also switching gears. You know, once Sega had sort of surpassed Nintendo or was really on even footing, they knew how to change the narrative to the public from Sega as the underdog to Sega as the market leader and, and not do it in a way that, you know, Sega was the slow and stodgy new market leader, but they were the hip new guys that were showing you um, what was out there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and the only other company that quickly comes to mind that I think does such a good job of that is Apple. You know, I think that they are certainly uh, very mainstream now and market leader in a lot of ways, but they still sort of feel like that outsider and like that rebel. And they've done a great job of, you know, branding themselves to, to uh, stay, to keep that main, to maintain that perception as they found enormous success. I'm hoping they can keep that up. I don't know. Ever since Steve Jobs has, has passed, I think it's uh, been a little bit more of a challenge for them, but, uh, and they got yeah. some good competition now too. It's also just um, just hard, yeah. I mean, there's so much competition. Um, so I was curious, you know, um, when you first heard about this book uh, and what you expected. I know there was some news in February about Seth Rogen being involved with writing and directing uh, the feature film mm -hmm. adaptation. Um, I don't know if that was the first time you heard about the book or if it was more recently, but I was curious what you expected as someone who grew up with this and was, you know. Um, what kind of style you expected and what kind of story you expected. I'll be real. When I, uh, when I heard about the book, I'm like, I already know this story. <laughs> I already know this story. I don't, I don't need to read an, an, another book on it. I've, I've read articles and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, like, like I've, I've emailed you back and forth off the air. The, the amount of insight into just be able to have. And, that, and I wanted to talk to you about the movie too, because the, you, yeah. there is so much insight in this book and uh, just talking to, uh, to friends about it. Um, obviously with, with Seth Rogen, there's, there's expectations that people have when it comes to his movies and stuff like that. So, well, might as well ask this now since we're talking about it. Um, yeah. it is there, like what is the the vision for the movie? Because I always think of, of like after reading it, like I I'm a big fan of Pirates of Silicon Valley. Like that's one of my you know favorite oh, yeah. favorite Definitely. yeah absolutely. And it's uh, one of my favorite movies just because of of the way it's set up and just hoping that obviously not related, but uh, hoping that it's not a a grandma's boy. Everyone that <laughs> everyone that doesn't really love video games, but knows that I like video games like oh have you seen grandma boy that's grandma's boy that's like the best movie for video gamers I'm like not my, not my you know cup but uh what what is the the vision that you guys have for it is it more of like that parts of silicon valley look or is it going to be more of just like a like a comedy like what's the idea um i mean so ultimately uh seth and evan it's their movie so you know my, my opinions are certainly more like speculation. I mean, I've spoken to them about it and am going to executive produce, but you know, it's their work and, um, the, whatever decisions they want to make, they can make. But I will say that, um, the thing that made me really want to work with them, um, aside from certainly Seth is a, a Hollywood star. Um, but I love that movie that they did 50, 50. Um, 
that movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Seth, um, you know, about somebody who had has cancer and was given a 50% chance to live. And to me, that was, you know, a perfect example of what their film company, Point Grey Pictures, can do. Um, did you see that movie by chance? I have not. It's on. I know it's on my Netflix uh, queue. I have not gotten to it yet. Though. Okay. I mean, certainly that's a very different subject matter than Console Wars, and, and I'm not trying to compare it in that sense, but just mm-hmm. that that was a very serious movie or a very serious topic, and they dealt with it extremely well. You know, it wasn't a comedy, but it was funny at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that just shows, you know, I think a lot of people forget that because Seth is such a um, huge star. Um, and also because a lot of the movies are uh, stoner comedies that, um, you know, he has such a great pedigree in this world. You know, he was on Freaks and Geeks, which I think is a show that um, both highbrow and lowbrow uh, people consider to be a great television show. Um, then he was on Judd Apatow's Undeclared, which was a good show. And, you know, he was, I think, 20 years old at the time and he was writing and directing episodes. Um, so, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's a really smart guy and, you know, certainly great at writing jokes, but he's also mostly, you know, I think his biggest talents is that he, him and Evan are great storytellers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I think that in our minds, we all sort of, uh, see this as the, the social network of video games, um, like the Aaron Sorkin, uh, David Fincher movie from a couple of years ago. And, and sort of to that point, we, uh, it, you know, Seth and Evan are attached to write and direct and to produce, but Scott Rudin, who produced Moneyball and Social Network, mm-hmm. um, and pretty much a lot of the best movies over the past decade, um, is involved producing as well. And I think that that was, uh, you know, uh, indicative of the direction that they are interested in going. Um, so we'll see. But uh, I, you know, I uh, wh- what's so great about this story is the drama, um, the human drama, and just this uh, notion of innovation versus the status quo and, you know, how to sustain success. And I think that those are certainly the things that attracted um, Seth and Evan to it most, um, not the opportunity to make jokes with Sega and Nintendo as the punchlines are, you know, involved. So uh, I think that people can expect a movie more similar to the social network than um, maybe to Pineapple Express. Yeah, and even – that sounds awesome. Like it sounds like that is – that's what I'm looking for. And even – I was talking again. I was talking to some buddies about the book, uh, and I'm like, man, I would I would totally kill for like a. a I think it needs like a ten part or like a thirteen part <laughs> miniseries, yeah, uh, because there is so much. And uh, the the thing with uh, Steve Jobs' uh, biography, um, what they're doing, I guess, is like three major events. Um, and even that, I'm right. like, man, I just I want more of it. But you can also still read the book too if you want to get more of it. Uh, if yeah. you're not satisfied with, uh, you know, the amount that can be covered in like a you know a two hour uh, movie. Yeah, I mean that's something that I've been uh, thinking about a lot as I've been co-directing the documentary with my business partner Jonah Tulis. Is um, so obviously you know I wrote a 500 plus page book that to me even just you know scratched the surface or or it's not you know there's still so much more out there mm-hmm. um, and, and we've been doing this documentary that's going to be about a 90 minute movie um, and you know it's what do you include in this um, and you know if it sort of like if it was up to me it would be a 13 point a 13 part documentary series because there's so many cool things um, so you know it'll be interesting to see what Seth and Evan do to condense it to a two hour story. Um, but at the same time, I, I have no doubt that they'll do a great job because, um, they really have been batting a thousand. Every movie, yeah. everything they've touched has turned to gold. Um, whether it is a more serious drama, like 50, 50 that they produced, um, or whether it's neighbors, which they produced, or whether it's, um, this is the end, which they wrote and directed, you know, those guys, 
there's a reason that they're um, at the top in Hollywood, and uh, you know, I, there's there's not a pair of guys that I feel would feel more comfortable with than them. For sure, there's no. Uh, I'm not worried. Uh, yeah, it's, it's more. Well, it's, it's, some people uh, might be. I, I I could see somebody being worried because this is such a uh, special subject to a lot of people. But well, I would. It's, just, it's almost uh, like we. It's it's almost like, like for me. It's almost like I. Like, maybe it's for like this for for people out there too. But it's almost like I have ownership of yeah, you know no, some of this stuff exactly. because like I this is like the stuff that I grew up with, and you just want to make sure that you know it's treated. Uh, the right way and respectful, not like like I said, like Grandma's Boy, like people who don't like video games like that movie. But for people that like actually think of this medium in a serious way, uh, it's like just a bunch of like like yeah, nerd like jokes right. and, and stuff like that that are just making fun of the people that like this stuff and not uh, really just celebrating the you know the medium itself. Yeah, I mean, these were things that I wrestled with a lot when I was writing the book because I know that everyone has so much ownership over this topic, and that's what I love about it. Um, and I wanted to present these stories in a way where I knew some people would uh, be upset just for the sake that I wasn't talking about Nintendo here, I wasn't talking about Sega here, I wasn't talking about this game. Um, and while at the se- also at the same time trying to write it in that way that would appeal to my grandma, but not in that grandma's boy way where I'm just sort of like dismissing the video game industry for the sake of trying to shoehorn it into making it a an exciting sexy drama that um you know my grandma would like you know trying to please all the people really set a uh set a difficult challenge for me um but i think i was able to accomplish it to a large extent and i think that seth and evan will absolutely be able to accomplish it um and i am excited to see how yeah. it develops yeah i mean I, in, in the book just to, to to go back to that you you know you treat the subject matter you know very uh, professionally, and uh, it 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 has an epic feel to a lot of these events because there were multiple times, like in this timeline, where things could have the tides could have turned dramatically. Um, and let's 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 talk a little bit more about the the history because uh, sure we we talked before that throughout the book, like the the reader or at least me as the reader, I'm getting the sense that you know Sega of America uh, was. Really, they, they were the Rocky, and Nintendo of America was the Apollo Creed at the beginning. Like they were the, like the unbeatable, the superstar, like the the yes. arrogant uh, athlete. Where uh, you know Rocky Balboa or, or Sagan, this matter was just like the scrappy young guy doing things a little bit differently to get ready for the fight. And um, and I wanted to ask you about their strategy. Do you think like Sega just had the really the perfect strategy with the way they were going about? And I'm guessing this is really on, on Tom Kalinske and Al Nielsen, who uh, did such a, a great job getting the the advertising together and, and, and heading up a lot of that stuff. Um, did you just think it was just the perfect recipe? Um, yeah, I did. And, you know, it was certainly, uh, I think, Tom's vision and just his leadership. You know, when you speak to him, you can see why this guy is a great leader, that just being around him, you feel like you have a better chance of winning. Um, and it was more than just Tom and Al, of course. Um, even even t- Tom's predecessor, Michael Katz, I think, put a lot of things in place that were really helpful. He was the one um, who oversaw the Genesis Does What Nintendo Don't campaign. So, um it, you know, I don't think that was uh, nearly as effective as the Welcome to the Next Level campaign. I think that people remember that slogan well, but but they weren't selling the Gen- – uh, you know, I made a point in the book that uh, Genesis does what Nintendo and, and Nakayama thought, what, make money? Because, you know, it was, a, it was a clever phrase, but uh, 
you know, I, I do think that there was a very, you know, I think it was a, it was the perfect recipe. Um, you know, I think the big thing that Sega did was, uh, define their advantages. They had very few at the time, but they saw, okay, Sonic could be an advantage for us. Mm-hmm. Um, us being, an, us being a nimbler company could be an advantage for us. Um, us making more adult themed games like sports games, um, could be an advantage for us going after the market that Nintendo doesn't have can be an advantage for us. And or then just, just really cr- with EA, like you mentioned, uh, yeah. you know, setting up that partnership saying they gave EA just an unbelievable deal <laughs> to make games, on the Genesis, they didn't take you know as as uh, many royalties with right. EA as they did with other companies, and it was a huge advantage. Like you remember, NHL '94 was probably a better game on the Super Nintendo, but everyone remembers it on the Sega Genesis. Yeah, I mean, um, and that and that's sort of you know you're you're uh, mentioning that example with the giving EA a sweet deal, which they kind of did at gunpoint. Um, yeah, that's because true. EA had reverse engineered it, but yeah. but that was a good example of sort of like you know as much as it was that uh, Al and Tom and Diane Eb and Shinobu had really created this uh, perfect storm for Nintendo. Um, it was also a lot of luck, like anything in life, um, and, and not just luck like you scratch off a lottery ticket and win money, but but more just they were given opportunities and they made the best of them. Um, like you know things like I think going back to my own personal example, Nintendo not making the Super Nintendo uh, backwardly compatible was a huge blunder. You know it would seem like a small have to make it uh, backwardly compatible. They could have um, released some sort of attachment that allows you to play the old games. Um, which Sega had, I, I described it in the book as the most valuable, worst selling product. Cause it was, you know, it, nobody bought it, but they could at least, um, tell people on a marketing level, Oh, if you want to play your old master system games, you can, don't worry. You know, we're, we're not looking to upset anybody. Um, so Nintendo, um, you know, didn't do themselves any favors in a lot of ways. And, uh, Nintendo stubbed their toe at first. Um, and I think that Sega really benefited from that. And, uh, th- by the time that, Nintendo really started, uh, I guess I would say, wake up and uh, fight back. Nintendo, Sega had done such a good job of painting them into a corner mm-hmm. and making them uncool that it, you're in that situation where people now believe it. And, and when you're the, the uncool person saying, no, no, I'm cool, like, you know, people don't really buy it because they've already formed their opinion. Just um, go and uh, stand on that for a second. There, there's an, an infamous uh, piece of, or I think, it, I forget what program it was on, but the, on one of the news programs where. Uh, it was all about the Super Nintendo and parents being pissed off yeah, that yeah, they yeah. had to drop $200 on this new thing. Why don't these games work on the thing that I bought two years ago? Uh, yeah, and- I think actually the headline of that story was like, what do you do when you've um, you know, taken over a country and swept the globe with success? Well, yeah. you declare that previous product obsolete and offer a new one. And, well, and yeah. And it was that, that and it was going along with that anti Japanese sentiment right. in, the, in the United States where, you know, we're giving, we're sending all this money to Japan and they're making the best stuff at the time. And the United States was not doing as well economically. It's, uh, it, 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 again, if you can go on YouTube, uh, look for it. It is a, uh, interesting piece to, yeah, to check definitely. out just for context. And even, you know, going back to the Japanese thing that you mentioned, I think that, um, both of these companies are, uh, Japanese companies and, mm-hmm. uh, I think that Sega did a great job of uh, flying under the radar with that. I think yeah. as a kid, I probably wouldn't have said that they were a Japanese company. I, and I think that they were really wise in how they marketed themselves and made themselves seem brash and like 
a Western company and letting Nintendo take a lot of the heat for being a, a successful Japanese video game company at the time. Well, they used their in, – in their advertising, a lot of their spokespeople were major like United States personalities, whether it was like Tom LaRusso or yep. – uh, and even for the boxing games and – yeah, they had uh, Joe Tommy Montana. Lucifer, they had Evander Holyfield, they had Buster Douglas. That's which right. Was a funny situation. Uh, David Robinson, Joe Montana, who was the golden boy of America, a great American hero. Um, they were so great at identifying uh, coolness and trends. And uh, as uh, Al used to tell me, uh, borrowing the cool, you know, mm-hmm. of aligning themselves with Nickelodeon or MTV at this early part um, in both those companies' development and, and saying, you know, we. In the Venn diagram of coolness, we're intersecting with Nickelodeon here, and, and that makes us cooler for it. You know, they were so good at being strategic in that and never, um, you know, oversaturating it. They didn't, be, you know, blur the lines too much with MTV or Nickelodeon or Joe Montana. You never felt like they were that company that was just that one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they knew how to take a little from here and a little from there. And uh, a lot of times when you take the best of uh, a lot of different things, the stew doesn't really turn out that good. It turns into a mess, but Sega had sort of the perfect recipe, um, or the, at least they did for a while. Yeah, and I, I, I never remember Nintendo using like big United States personalities until Ken Griffey Jr. And, uh, like, and even in that, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the first one that comes to mind for me. And even in that situation, um, you know, that was one of the few places in the book where I included an article um, mm-hmm. from the Seattle Times because I wanted to show that even when they did sort of work with an American celebrity, there was this whole weird thing where, like, they didn't want to work with Ken Griffey Jr. and they couldn't come to terms and they owned the baseball team that employed him. Um, so it was like even in that situation, uh, they, they didn't have the same approach as Sega and and, percep- and the perception was that it was negative. The game itself was great and that, you know, helped them in the long run. The bedside matter and the making that whole thing work was like kind of a mess. Well, Sega pursued, you, you mentioned this in the book too, that Sega really went after Ken Griffey Jr. for yeah. their baseball <laughs> yeah. game too, just to almost like mess with Nintendo because wouldn't that be perfect if Ken Griffey Jr., the head of the Nintendo-owned baseball team was on the cover of a Sega Genesis game. Yeah, um, it was. I loved watching the Tom's eyes light up when he tells the story because he was just like it was almost like he didn't care how it ended. He just wanted to really um, piss off Nintendo, and it did. Um, he just loved being that guy who was an instigator um, and watching his company benefit from uh, playing. You know these little schemes. So was Sonic the was Sonic the best weapon that uh, Sega had up against Nintendo? Was that the the most powerful thing that they ever had in terms of uh, you know getting market share in America, or was it more of the the sports titles and the more uh, arcade titles? Definitely Sonic. You know, personally for me, it was more the sports games, but but it has to be Sonic because mm-hmm. um, you know more than just the gameplay because i you know to be perfectly honest i i was pretty terrible at sonic um you know i liked i thought he i liked the game but my liking of the game had a lot more to do with the character himself like i remember being a kid and thinking i wanted to be a sega person and i had a sega but i felt like deep down maybe i wasn't cool enough but like i wanted to be cool enough and i felt like if i kept trying like i wanted to have that sonic attitude Mm -hmm. um so i think that just sort of the marketing side of sonic um was a big part of why he was their best weapon. You know, the game itself was great. Um, and one of the sort of devil's advocates things that I've had in my head these past few years is I wonder um, how much of the success of Sega of America was due to, um, you know, a lot of the credit that I'm 
giving to these people or, and how much of it was just this great game or great games in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the conclusion I came to um, was that uh, I was walking to the subway yesterday and I saw um, uh, two kids. One had a Sonic backpack and his sister had a Sonic shirt. And, you know, I, I've looked at, uh, you know, you look at other great games over the, over the history of video games um, with lead characters. And I was thinking of Crash Bandicoot. That was a great game mm-hmm. for Sony. That was kind of what the Sonic um, you know, the edgy game with like, it was the edgy platformer and it was kind of their Mario, but you know, Crash Bandicoot isn't around nowadays. A lot of other great characters aren't around. Um, turning Sonic from a, a lead character in a good game into a global icon in a great game, uh, really just shows the transformative power of that marketing. Um, and, and that's, you know, I feel very good in, uh, shining a light on those guys who helped make that happen. Uh, Well, we have a lot more to talk about, but uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be right back with more with Blake. So stick around. Sure. Okay, we're back, and as you can probably tell by the the length of this interview, this book is just so full of stuff, and I, I feel like we can only really scratch the surface with a lot of it. But um, I wanted to talk to you uh, more about the the way Sega went about competing with Nintendo, because uh, you did get a lot of insight with uh, the people at Sega and how they they had to counteract everything that Nintendo was doing. And even at the time of the Super Nintendo's release, it came out at $199, and they set a price drop to $179. And right off the bat, like Sega had a response for it. And even if it was, uh, and I think this wasn't the particular case, I think it was when uh, Super Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, the core system, just the system itself was going to be available for $99, where... Sega uh, did some investigating, even went undercover yeah. to to get some like like we need to know like what's Nintendo going to be talking about. We need to be prepared just so we can counteract whatever they're going to announce. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about that night that uh, yeah. Sega found out about that and what they did? I was actually thinking about that during our break, just that that was such a great um, personification of the Sega spirit and how quickly they moved and how well they executed. Um, so, you know, the Super Nintendo came out in August of 1991 or, you know, late August, early September 1991, and it, it was priced at 199 And to just show how how much of a dent Sega was already making, um, in January they dropped it, I believe, to uh, 179 and then quickly to 150 um, And, you know, uh, the previous generation Nintendo, they were pretty staunch with their prices and pretty slow moving with the price drops. But Sega was really on them so much they had to move. Um, and, the, and the incident you're describing in the book is uh, at the June uh, summer CES of 1992. Um, there was rumors that Nintendo had a big announcement, and usually Sega's uh, intel on the ground was able to find out what this was. But this one was so uh, closely guarded they were unable to do so. Um, but you know they kept on trying. 
and apparently Nintendo was going to announce this thing the next morning. Um, and and Sega's people didn't quit. That you know, Tom split everyone up into groups of uh, into pairs, and they went to all the different uh, industry parties. Um, and uh, Diane Fornasier and Alan Beth Van Buskirk found out uh, like at like eleven o'clock or close to midnight at the EA party that Nintendo's big announcement was a uh, price drop that they were going to drop it lower, and Sega would no longer have this advantage. One of their advantages in their arsenal was always that they had the cheaper system, and you know they were going to lose that advantage. Um, and so the, even though it was very late at night, um, everyone got together and uh, they worked through the night um, to basically rebrand all of their materials and uh, drop their own price. And, uh, and, you know, just making a decision on a dime to drop a price is one thing, um, you know, that it, it takes some, uh, some balls, but, but it's, it, it's, you know, it's a decision you can make. But where Sega is really impressive and what really demonstrates what they did was that, you know, they didn't want to just make the price drop. They wanted to make a look to their own uh, reps and the people at the show like this was something that they had always planned. They didn't want to make it look like they were responsive because they didn't want to be the company that was responding to Nintendo. They wanted to be um, the company that was always forward thinking. So they were able to um, spend the entire night staying up, crafting all these promotional materials, crafting speeches and talking points and make it look like this was their plan all along. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, price wars are interesting, but but in general, um, maybe they're a little bit dry. But this is a great example of Sega really bringing to life um, a price war and making it more than just a price war. This was a, a group of underdogs staying up through the night because they had done so much. They'd been throwing a perfect game. They didn't want to finally give up a hit to Nintendo. They, they couldn't they couldn't lose the momentum, and, and they were able to pull it off and get their announcement out there, and everyone assumed that it was something that had been planned for weeks, um, and Sega kept their momentum going into 1992, and that was right before um, they held their agency review and ended up selecting Goodby Berlin and Silverstein, who did the Welcome to the Next Level commercials, and mm-hmm. you know that really helped them uh, k- keep their foot on the pedal going into what would be their greatest stretch to come. And uh, just uh, sticking on the advertising, we're talking about the the advertising tactics between the two companies, but it was because that's how they fought. That was their battleground was uh, in advertising. It was uh, in partial, you know, partially it was exclusives, but that kind of dried up or that that did not happen so much after the NES when, uh, or even you should probably mention briefly, like with the NES, like if a game came out on the NES, it could not come out on any other platform it was exclusive, right? Um, so yeah. that that was where where Sega ran into a little bit of a trouble at the beginning, just even getting games on the Genesis itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was something that I also didn't realize as a kid, or at least not on a conscious level, because you'd think, you know, they've already spent the costs of making this game; they should easily just be able to port it or bring it to the other console. But Nintendo had in their licensing agreements that they weren't allowed to do that because they knew that the exclusive that there was a major value to having exclusive titles. Um, so yeah, but, but sort of going into 1992, um, 1993, that had sort of changed a bit and now companies would have games on both systems or even if it was an exclusive with EA, say for Sega, then a few months later they would release the Madden game and it would be out of season, but at least you could play that game on the Nintendo, Mm -hmm. um, on the Super Nintendo. So yeah, so the advertising really was their battlefield. Um, and if you kind of go back to that example I gave at KB Toys, um, of my own experience and, you know, the only criteria to choose a game was, um, the back of the box um, and with no internet, you know, like they, the commercials, only other way that you like know about these companies or that you're given insight into how you should feel, you know, how you might want to feel about these companies and what the brand represents. So that was a huge thing. And Sega totally 
understood how huge that was and, and really put a lot of their eggs into that basket. And that mm-hmm. was pivotal in turning the tide. Even all this advertising that Sega did against Nintendo at the beginning, they had to go behind the backs of, or they thought they needed to go behind <laughs> the backs of Sega of Japan because it was uh, so, you know, anti or non-Japanese to go and talk a bunch of crap about your competitor. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So, um, you know, in Japanese business practice, um, in marketing, it's considered sort of uncouth to go after your competitor. And even to some extent in America, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's risky to call out your competitor by name or show them their products in your commercials and whatnot. Um, but, but Tom thought that was a really major part of the equation. Um, and so before Tom got there, there were those Genesis does what Nintendo commercials, um, you know, and the message is is interesting, and obviously it lasted the test of time. But if you, wa- I advise, I recommend anybody watch those commercials because they are um, not all that different than the Nintendo commercials, just in terms of being like kind of cheesy. You know, it's like Genesis does, but Nintendo like it's not. It doesn't capture that edge. It doesn't feel edgy. It doesn't feel like these are guys who are um, will are, who are willing to do anything to take down Nintendo. It's just kind of cutesy with a with a nice slogan. Um, and, and Sega wanted to. Um, really define um, the brand and make it an aspirational product and, you know, continue to appeal to adults um, as part of their plan to let Nintendo have the kids and to go after teens, college students, and adults. And so, you know, by 1992, Nintendo, uh, sorry, by 1992, Sega had become successful enough that, you know, people were returning their calls now. Retailers would return the calls and the advertising agencies, um, you know, were interested in working with Sega. And sort of the big coup for Sega was that uh, Wyden and Kennedy, the ad agency behind the Nike commercials, the Just Do It commercials, um, and, and so many of the great Nike ads from the 80s and 90s, those ones with um, Spike Lee and uh, a bunch of the other, you know, the Be Like Mike commercials, they, were, they wanted to get Sega's business. And, and Tom was just overjoyed. Um, these were guys were like the tops when it came to not you know advertise not just advertising but advertising in terms of in a cool way in a in a way that was cool without trying to be too cool um, and so they thought that they were going to go with Wyden and Kennedy but they held this agency review um, and Wyden and Kennedy pitched and they had a pretty cool pitch it had sort of a um, a clockwork RNG 1984 dystopian feel to it mm-hmm. um, and I was lucky enough to get a copy of the of the pitch and able to use some of the language that they used in the book. Um, but then sort of this little guy, Goodby Berlin and Silverstein, led by Jeff Goodby and Rich Silverstein, um, was, was the, uh, the third person in this race. And, and they were sort of more there out of a courtesy because they were locally based. And, and nobody at Sega really thought that they had much of a chance um, to win the business because how could this company whose uh, you know, best, best uh, campaign to date, um, I think it was like a dog food ad, um, really compete against uh, – this company that just does Nike's uh, global marketing. Um, but Good Berlin and Silverstein, they came up with this uh, great welcome to the next level pitch, which uh, I detail in the book. And it is interesting because a couple of weeks before the actual pitch, they did focus groups and it did so badly. Um, and they were able to rejigger it and really capture the message um, w- without losing uh, a lot of the the edge that they were failing to get across in their original pitch. And then the other interesting thing was um, sort of, you know, th- there was a lot of parallels between this agency and Sega. Um, it, it was, it, the agency was called Good Be Berlin and Silverstein, but uh, the man in the middle, Ber- 
and people were wondering if, if this agency was going to stick around, if they were going to fold, if Goodby and Silverstein were going to go their own separate ways. And so they were sort of on the cusp in the same way that Sega was. Um, and they put together this incredible pitch. They rented out um, this giant room in a hotel. They set up televisions to make like a monster television because uh, back then they didn't really, you know, their big televisions were harder to find. Um, and they had every single person or for every single game that Sega had released, they had a, a person at the agency become an expert in that game. So some mm-hmm. people had one game, some people had two, but just to show how serious they were about this business. Um, and they completely wowed Sega and they got the account and they launched the Welcome to the Next Level campaign, which had the famous Sega scream, the Sega. Um, and that was really what took, um, you know, I, I would say up until that point, Sega had done a great job of getting their foot in the door. Um, but that was really what kicked the door open and uh, Sega just ran right in and and it was sort of like a runaway train from that point on another one of the big wins that sega had or one of the decisions that they made was to include a blood code with uh their version of mortal Kombat on the sega genesis where uh this was a a huge win for them because it outsold or the mortal Kombat on genesis outsold the super nintendo one like three to one right yeah, I've heard between three to one and five to one. The data from that time is kind of spotty, but whatever it was, that you know, it was at least three to one, and they definitely. And this was like was, the biggest game. Like there was, it was Mortal Monday. Like this game was gigantic. Yeah, I mean, I think people might forget um, who are younger that, or even just had forgotten uh, living through it. You know, sort of back in the day, uh, arcades were dying down a little bit by the late '80s and early '90s, but arcade games themselves were still pretty popular. They'd be in pizza places and. Um, other places where people hung out. And, and it was almost like that was the minor leagues of video games. Like that was like the test market. Um, if a game was really hot in the arcade, it would come to the console about nine months later. Um, and that would, that would be one, you know, often be one of the biggest hits. Like Street Fighter 2 is a good example that was out in the arcades. Nintendo got the exclusive rights. Um, and that helped them uh, weather the storm early on when the Sega was starting to do well. And so Mortal Kombat was this game, very bloody game, which included the fatalities and ripping people's spines out and uppercutting them into spikes below. Um, and both Sega and Nintendo uh, were able to get the rights to this sort of in the way you described. These exclusive agreements had kind of fallen apart. And Sega made the decision to include this blood code so that people could play the game in all of its original bloody splendor. And Nintendo's, uh, Nintendo's Howard Lincoln decided that Nintendo needed to maintain its family-friendly uh, image and uh, they would change the blood to a green sweat and they would tamper down the violence a little bit um, and, and Sega trounced them. Um, and, and one of my favorite stories from the entire research process is just that um, Howard was smiling as he told me this, that, uh, you know, he, expe- he kind of thought that they might get crushed by this, but he thought it was the right thing to do. But he at least expected to get, uh, you know, thank you notes from parents or be lauded for Nintendo having mm. such high integrity. But they got thousands of angry letters from parents um, complaining that they were censoring their games. Um, <laughs> that was a real turning point for Sega. That was... You know, that came out in the fall of 1993. 1994, just month after month, Sega just dominates the charts. Uh, you know, in the book, I included uh, a top 10 list from yeah, one of the months. Yeah. And it was amazing. I, Sega had eight of the 10 games, and uh, the top two was NBA Jam, I believe. And it was one was on Genesis, and one was on the Nintendo. And it was essentially the same exact game, but one sold twice as much as the other because it was on Genesis. And that was cool and hot, and that was the it system at the time. Yeah, that that seemed to be also be one of the first cracks for Nintendo saying like, yeah, we need to do things a little bit differently. We need to loosen up because uh, if they're going to like if this is what the people want, 
you know, this is what we need to put on our system. Otherwise, Sega is just going to gain more and more ground, which uh, led to the government getting involved uh, yeah. and, and the infamous uh, infamous uh, argument that the government had with Nintendo and Sega. And I, I, I knew about I knew about that, but I didn't realize how vicious it was between like Nintendo and Sega just like talking about each other constantly to like put the blame on uh each other just like you know calling out uh which each of them were doing like calling out the uh whether it was the the gun on the super nintendo or calling out night trap on the sega cd like it was just it was vicious well it can't i mean it came at the worst possible time or the most interesting time like this was um, the, the Senate subcommittee hearings on uh, video game violence led by Senator Lieberman happened in December of 1993, and this was a couple months after Mortal Kombat, and it was like the, right after Sega had just become the new market leader or was on the a cusp of right about to take the lead, and then this was the time that it happened, and like you know the hatred they had for one another was at an all time high, um, and uh, you know I'm curious who do you think won the Senate subcommittee hearings from your perspective? Who do you think benefited from them? Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I thought that both companies just, just won in the sense of, well, I, I, it was just a, a, such a terrible thing in general because it was talking about like first amendment rights, like right. not saying that, like saying that video games are not equal to a movie or a book or, um, even like the same crap happened with music and trying to, to censor music, uh, back in that time period. But, uh, if I would have to guess, I would say, you know, it was probably, you know, Sega, because if, if Nintendo had their way, the stuff would still be censored and they would, you know, be able to just keep putting out Mario games where Sega was putting out more edgy, uh, you know, games that kids wanted in the nineties. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess I felt like, uh, I wrestled back and forth with that, like, you know, who won? Um, Sega had a rating system before, so it was kind of like yeah. a bit of a kangaroo court. But but in the end, you know, I think that they, that did kind of stall Sega a bit. And, uh, you know, Nintendo also kind of got to now eat their cake, uh, have their cake and eat it too, because, uh, you know, in that Mortal Kombat situation, they had chosen not to make it gory. But now they, you know, as a result of the seven subcommittee hearings and a, and a rating system, an industry-wide rating system, Nintendo now could kind of release the games and, and you know have the have the rating system to kind of defend themselves. Um, but it was just a lot of interesting back and forth that I, I was so glad happened. Kind of the most interesting time of the book. So uh, you you focus a lot uh, on the companies leading up to the thirty-two and sixty-four bit wars. Uh, yeah. I mentioned before that uh, Sony really played a, a pivotal role in the history between these two companies, or they could have. They really could have because yeah. uh, Sony came to Nintendo with uh, you know the Nintendo PlayStation is what it was going to be their CD system, where Nintendo instead said actually you know. We're gonna, we have a great idea. We're going to go with Philips because uh, they're the leader in CD technology. So uh, they went with Philips. We got a bunch of terrible games uh, out of that on the CDI. But uh, like that's the thing that people – we've heard that story before. But I did not know that Sega and Sony were really close to a partnership on their next-gen system after the Sega Genesis. But that partnership – uh, fell apart when instead they wanted to go with a uh, 
the system that they developed in the labs at Sega of Japan. Yeah, no, I, I had absolutely no idea that Sega and Sony were close um, and, and close to releasing hardware, though I guess, you know, as I started to think back, there were clues there just in terms of the Sega CD. Um, Sony was a huge supporter of the Sega CD um, and sort of was close with Sega and that idea of Tom sort of forming a cartel of Nintendo's enemies. Mm-hmm. So, so it made sense, but I never realized how close they were to potentially having a console, a joint console. They worked together for about six months um, to try to agree on architecture and hardware. And in the end, um, there was irreconcilable differences and they both went their separate ways. Um, but yeah, Sony, you know, um, plays a peripheral role in the story, but a significant one. And, and it was really that chapter that, um, that first featured Olaf Olafsson um, visiting Nintendo as a third-party company. And at this time, you know, maybe had some aspirations of hardware, but nothing serious um, other than that we know than what we know from hindsight. And for me, that was kind of when um, I, I came to the realization that the biggest inspiration for me writing this book um, was not Michael Lewis's Moneyball or Ben Mesrick's Accidental Billionaires, which I had thought up to that point it was, but it was really uh, George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, and that this really was just a real-life version of Game of Thrones with all these um, different companies with such unique and complex history and such a even more complex history when you uh, put them all together. And, and they all think that they have a right to this to this throne, um, or they all are chasing it. And you know, you sort of see Sony go from this um, third party perspective, where Olaf described to me as he felt like Nintendo treated Sony like they were slaves on a plantation, uh, which is a pretty strong way of putting it. Um, and, and sort of from that, and then the humiliation that they felt when Nintendo uh, announced they were working with Philips and did so um, very specifically to embarrass Sony. Um, in a public setting yeah. and, and you see them um, then sort of fight back and try to make an alliance with Sega, um, which for a long time they have. And, and there's also a friendship there between Tom and Olaf that helped sustain it. And then um, that falls apart and Sony boldly goes on their own. Um, and, you know, it, it was no foregone conclusion that the Sony PlayStation would succeed. Um, you know, now it seems like, of course they would, they're Sony, they're big and they have four PlayStations, but um, you know, they, they re- you know, their story from their perspective was as unlikely as Sega's succeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they sort of, uh, you know, Olaf is a student of history, as is Kutaragi, and he made a great system. And they learned from the, the, the successes and the mistakes of both Sega and Nintendo, and they um, outdo both of them. Um, and, and certainly just, you know, from a writer's standpoint, um, <laughs> what better ending is there to the story than that Sega loses to the two systems that they could have um, been involved with developing. I mean, obviously it wasn't like someone sit, handed them the N64 and they're like, here, do you want it? I mean, the system that, that they would have done with Silicon Graphics would have been yeah. a little bit different. And, you know, but, but they had the chance at least to uh, prevent their competitor from having these systems or at least have a system that was very similar to what became the Sony PlayStation or the Nintendo 64. And the fact that that's what defeated them, um, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, poetry to it. It's, it's kind of sad poetry, but um, as a writer, it's one that, it's an ending I couldn't have made up myself, and it's uh, it was very interesting. Well, it's it's sad because you you start to see that was at towards the end, but in the the later in like ninety four, ninety five, uh, or ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, uh, you could see that uh, you know Tom Klinsky was was doing his best to maximize what uh, Sega of America was doing. They still had a, a great foothold in the United States, but uh, he was constantly getting shut down by, you know, the the higher-ups in Japan where they stuck him with the 32X, even though he thought it was a piece of crap. Um, And then it was the Sega Saturn, but it was also, and this is another infamous story, where 
guess what? We're we're at E3 in 1995, and we're going to release the Sega Saturn today. You can go to a store. Like, they tried to pull an Apple of, like, today, and it's available now. But it probably wasn't ready because a bunch of the, uh, you know, game publishers had no idea they were doing this. Yeah, Tom had a great quote um, in the documentary where he said, you know, when they – uh, when Sega of Japan um, pushed Sega of America to release the uh, Sega Saturn early and to do so at E3, um, which was, I think it was uh, five months ahead of when they were planning to release it, he said, not only did we not have enough software, but we didn't even have enough hardware. They had, uh, I think, 400,000 units. And, and you know, if you look at sort of the rise of Sega and how it started with the retail relations, um, years building these relations and showing them how they're not like Nintendo and how they're better to work with and now they're releasing only 400,000 units and naturally every retailer wants a piece of it because they don't know what a dog it is they just know it's Sega Um, and Sega had to choose do they give um, you know just the allotment that's desired to the top retailers or do they give like 10% of what everyone wants to all the places and they ended up choosing um, what they thought was the lesser of two evils to give to a few places um, and that pissed off everyone else, and they didn't want to work with Sega uh, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the other thing I want to ask you about, uh, you know, as we get towards the end, uh, the my, one of my favorite all time consoles is the Sega Dreamcast. I thought Sega hit a huge home run uh, with that thing, but it was to to little effect because a lot of people felt burned by the Sega CD, the 32X, and the Sega Saturn support in the United States. <laughs> and uh, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about the the Sega Dreamcast or even just to lump it in with a, another a question that I actually got uh, from one of our audience members on NeoGAF, a thousand branches, uh, who wanted to know, like, if, if you are thinking about doing a sequel, because it is still really interesting to talk about the time period between the PlayStation, the N64, the Saturn, but then the Dreamcast, Microsoft jumping in with the Xbox, the PlayStation 2. Yeah, yeah. Uh- I mean, in terms of a sequel, I'm definitely interested. I, I, I'm, I do feel like sort of a postpartum depression now to not be writing this book. I mean, it's a long book, and I spent every day for a year writing it and every day for three years researching it, so it's kind of sad to not be in it. And, uh, you know, I think that sort of in the same way that I began with this book, you know, I've definitely developed a major curiosity in learning what happened next, so whether that um, results in another book um, or not – We'll see. Um, But also, you know, one of my main goals with this book was to just inspire um, other writers to write books about the video game industry that really sort of um, focus on these kinds of things. So whether it's myself or not, I do hope that there's at least um, a few books that come out to talk about um, the Dreamcast debacle, which, you know, like you said, I I remember uh, I never got a Dreamcast, but I was thinking about buying one and I thought it was a gorgeous system. It was mm. so smooth, the games and they were so bright and felt, they reminded me so much of the Genesis games where it was like, yeah. they were, they were loud, but they weren't, you know, they weren't blowing my ears off. Like it was the, per- everything was perfect about it. Just the look, the feel, the way the controller felt. Um, and, and so I know admittedly uh, pretty little about, you know, all the business moves that led to the demise and Sega pulling out of the console business. But if I understand correctly, um, you know, that was another situation where the Dreamcast was actually starting to do really well in America, but because of problems um, between both sides, they ended up uh, pulling the plug and going Mm -hmm. exclusively towards software. Um, 
Yeah, so, it's a sad. It's a sad event yeah. because uh, I got one pretty close to launch, and I was blown away by NBA 2K on it and Sonic's Adventure, and uh, it was such a forward-thinking console at the time. 1999, having a modem built in, having yeah. uh, VGA output capabilities, where you can still put a Dreamcast and hook it up to an HD TV today, as long as it has a VGA input in the back, and it looks beautiful. It looks so good, even. You know, well, fifteen years later now. Yeah, no, it was great. Those the the NFL two K and the NBA two K. I just mm. remember like that was the first time in five years that I had seen a game, and I was just like, I need to have this console because I just want to play that game over and over and over. It looked so cool, so much more realistic than everything else, and it looked and it was smooth too because I, I you know I had a PlayStation and I really liked a lot of the sports games, but I don't think any of them were very smooth. Um, you know, they yeah. they were all kind of clunky, even though the graphics were good and they were fun. But but those two K games were awesome. Um, and it was sad to see it fall apart, though I'm not surprised knowing what I know. And also, you know, you make a really good point about sort of the baggage. It wasn't even just, you know, I think, I think the main message for this whole uh, book is that it's not about the products themselves. It's about the, the, the marketing in a uh, sinister way. But just, you know, the marketing really is just, it's just another word for context. It's mm-hmm. where are you trying to place this in the cultural context and how are you dealing with the baggage of the past. And because people have felt burned that was absolutely the reason. That was one of the reasons why I didn't buy the um, Dreamcast right away because I knew a little bit of Sega's history and I didn't want to, you know, spend all the money I'd saved up for years at that time, with, you know, to afford it and and be burned like a lot of people were. Yeah, I just uh, I, going in and reading this book, it 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 ignited a fire that or it, it intensified a fire that's that's been in me and just thinking. I've been doing this podcast for about a year now, and I've been super lucky to have been able to get to talk to so many people and to have, you know, uh, people that are uh, are you know really influential in the video game industry. Like talk about the the podcast. It's like, man, I I get so excited to do this stuff. And after reading the book, I'm like, man, why why am I not doing something? Like I think I was born 15 years too late because I would want <laughs> to have worked for you know Sega of America at that time. Because it just seemed uh, like it would have been the perfect job for someone that just loves this stuff so much. Yeah, well, it really was in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it's the first example, but it was one of the earlier examples of the sort of the Silicon Valley um, success story. Mm. Um, you know, and that's part of why I think there are similarities between um, just the story and the social network because it is sort of this like. Um, we don't know what we're building, but we know it's good, and that if we keep, you know, doing all these clever and aggressive things, it'll work out in the end. Um, and, and I'm actually um, curious in sort of an alternate universe where, let's say, Sega did create the Sega PlayStation, or or the Saturn was a huge success. Yeah. Uh, how things would have played out? Because, you know, if the Saturn came out in in 1995, and and let's say that they were Sega was very successful for the rest of the 90s, um, that was also sort of around the time that the uh, internet bubble happened or there was a lot of you know instant overnight millionaires in that area in some sort of brain drain or if the you know if the sega employees would have wanted um some sort of equity in sega because that was what was going on um at other companies around them and i'm always curious how that would have played out um with all that all that money and all those riches um and certainly sega um i think they from everything i've heard they paid their employees well but it wasn't a situation where you could become a millionaire um with Sega's success. If you could get in a time machine without any consequences, that would be one of the nice things to go back and try to influence. And as <laughs> yeah. long as you weren't going to make sure, uh, you know, 
that you know terrible things didn't happen after the fact, or maybe just a good episode of Sliders. Like it'd be a yeah, really good episode of Sliders. Yeah, I feel like you know. Um, I certainly would love to see a 13-part miniseries about um, this story in addition to a feature film. Um, and I would also love to see a J.J. Abrams TV show that shows an alternate timeline of what would have happened if this had happened or if you know Sega had made this move. Because there are so many what-ifs um, that would have had drastic ripples um, on the video game industry. Man, I smell a, a fringe fan on the <laughs> call. This is good. Yeah. I'm a, man, yeah. that's a great show. Um, I love Fringe, and I did like Sliders. Um, at the time, uh, good Jerry O'Connell television. Yeah, until he got fed up and left, and his and his brother <laughs> left too. Um, okay, so I, I want to, as we start to wrap things up, I, I need sure. to ask this because I've been thinking about this lately. Uh, video games were just better back then, right? Because now <laughs> uh, I, I just I still have a, I have a PlayStation Three, I have a PlayStation Vita, and I have a like a Wii U and stuff. Like I still play today's games but i just still feel that games back then were better there were no you know title updates you know things weren't shipped broken a big story in the last year has been how battlefield 4 it still doesn't work correctly and this is a game that they shipped in october uh, and it still does not work correctly for for people seven months later uh and uh talking with mike micah who has you know developed games for years and works on even a lot of emulation and things like that. I think I've just, I'm trying to get a definitive answer, like a scientific <laughs> answer is, is games were better back then. Right. Or uh, what, what's your take? Talk about a leading question. I mean, <laughs> video games were, video games were simpler back then. And for yeah. me, that meant that, that means better to me because I'm, um, you know, I don't, um, enjoy the experience of an, a feeling like I need to invest um, dozens and dozens of hours to uh, beat a game. I like being able to pick something up and put it down. Um, and that's just me. I'm, you know, that's a personal way of, that's my own personal value. Um, I think the other thing out of, uh, you know, being a, a screenwriter, do you get anything out of like the more, the more epic nature of, of games today, trying to put in like a huge story? Yeah, I do, and I and I and I think that that's why I w- that's the reason I wouldn't call the games from the eight bit, sixteen bit generation better because um, you know I, I got I bought a PS3 while writing this, and I bought the uh, Batman Arkham City game, and just the opening yeah. scene to it was amazing. But so sort of my problem is that um, you know the opening scene was amazing, and it it was like it was like watching a movie to me, and it was a great story. Um, but then it came time to play the game, and I was much more interested in finding out what happened from a story perspective um, than actually playing the game. Um, and and I, I'm in the minority because a lot of people enjoy playing the game, mm-hmm. but I'm more interested in uh, the story. And uh, you know, I think that uh, one big problem uh, for me with the games today, which is not meant to be disparaging at all, is I'm just, I just never became a fan of first-person shooters. So mm-hmm. I think that you know. If you do like first-person shooters, you're in heaven right now. That's a lot of these games are great, um, but that was just something that I never got into, and maybe I will. And then the last thing is like, um, you know, aside from just the fact that we were young, um, so certainly there's that. You know, we're going to look at this with sort of through rose-colored glasses, and there's that nostalgic feel. Um, you know, the video games. They, they were a little bit like magic. It was like playing cartoons, um, and, and it, it was like playing an. I think that as the games have become a little bit more realistic, um, there's sort of that uncanny valley where now it's like they are kind of too realistic and 
Um, you're con- it feels more like you're simulating something that's real than controlling something that's that's made up. Um, and that again doesn't make one better or worse. Um, but I love that feeling of like that I was creating magic back in the day. Well, the book is Console Wars, uh, and it is available at your favorite retailer. Pretty much everyone buys stuff on Amazon.com. That's probably the best way to go about because you can also get an Audible uh, version and a Kindle version. But I will say uh, I would recommend the the paper version, the old-fashioned paper version, because uh, you do include some awesome pictures that I think are some are even exclusive to the book because you got some of them from Tom, right? Yeah, they all came from the people themselves. So some were more publicity photos, but a lot of them were personal photos that nobody has ever seen before. Um, and, you know, the book is certainly long, um, but I think that it's a, an easy, quick read. I, I took every precaution I could to make it that way. And, um, you know, I think it's just to me, obviously, as the author, it's a very special book. But, uh, you know, there's certain books that I have in my house that I feel like uh, really capture the essence of an important topic or an important person, the Steve Jobs book in particular. Um, you know, that's the one that I, that's one that I like to own in print form and a few others like that. And, you know, I would love to be have this book be considered in that light. Um, that will be up to readers. But, you know, I you know, I love everything about the physical book. I think it's beautiful. Um, but but really, all I care about is just having people read the story in any fashion and, and learning about all these amazing people that I had never heard of before. Tom Kolinsky is one of the most incredible people I've ever met and ever read about. And when I, before I spoke to him, he had like a two sentence description on Wikipedia. Totally. Yeah. No, and, like, and before even his time at Sega, he deserves like a 50 page mention on Wikipedia. Yeah. Like this is, uh, I mean, this is one of the things that just got my, my mind racing. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I want to try to reach out to these guys too, because they just have, uh, such interesting stories and, it is kind of just a fact of being on the, the Sega side where uh, doing some more digging. Like these guys are open to talk. Like they have been on yeah. uh, like Sega fan podcasts and things like that. Uh, and they're more than willing and uh, very happy to to share some of this, some yeah. of these stories. The main, the main takeaway I hope people would get from this podcast or from this book um, is sort of like what you were saying, that feeling inspired. Um, you know, I am a person who had never written a book before and I had no ties to any of these people in the video game industry, but I reached out and found them and it was certainly not easy a lot of times, but I, you know, it was doable. And so whether it's, you know, writing more about this topic and finding these people or finding another topic, um, you know, don't feel, don't, don't feel like you, uh, have that there's a barrier out there because you're not this or you're not that, you know, you can make it happen. And I look forward to reading other people's stories about this topic and more. All right. Well, go in and check it out. Head to your, your local computer and type in amazon.com <laughs> or whatever. Um, because I think there's still bookstores around. There's, there's got to be a couple. I think the, the Barnes yeah. & Noble near me shut down, but uh, I'm sure you can also uh, go and at least uh, take a look at it in the bookstore. But if you're listening to this podcast, if you are – if you're hearing these words, this book was written for you. This is the stuff that you are going to want to know about and uh, to just get a better picture of what it was like back then. And it, it will lead you down a tunnel of going on YouTube and trying to find videos of CES in 1992 and uh, you know finding early uh, videos of, of E3. And thankfully, you know, some of this stuff has been preserved and uh, available are available digitally. So uh, it is a great dark hole to go down if you want to spend yes. some some time on the internet looking at that stuff too so um 
yeah, Blake, thank you so much for, for taking two hours out of a Sunday morning to, to talk. And uh, I think... Oh, it's my pleasure, Kevin. I really appreciate it. I really, uh, you know, I'd love to come back any other time if you want. If you have any more questions or if you want to talk more about this topic or others. And, you know, I really... Uh, I, the other thing I would like to express is I'm just so honored that I get to tell this story. Um, you know, I certainly think very highly of my writing abilities, as I should as a writer. But But really what makes this book great is that it's a true story and that these people have opened up and are, you know, uh, you know, I always sort of towards the end, once I realized what the story was, you know, if this is not a successful book, it's because I messed it up because, because the story itself deserve, you know, it's for everyone. It's, it's so amazing. Um, mm-hmm. So I've just been honored to tell the story and I, you know, really appreciate it. Well, let's, let's plan on that. Let's plan on having you back on to talk a awesome. little bit more about this stuff just because uh, it is, it's, it's timeless now. And, uh, Hopefully, people will, will get a chance to uh, digest the book. We'll come back with some more questions from the audience and stuff like that and uh, continue. But uh, hopefully, people are you know getting their headphones out and, and starting to, to read the book, or maybe they're switching to their Audible app to listen to it. But um, yeah, again, uh, huge pleasure to have you on the show. This has been a ton of fun, and uh, we'll definitely be talking to you down the road. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. I will speak to you soon. Absolutely.